0: Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 32 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. Like we do every week, we start off with a little roundup of the news. Um, Michelle, what is some interesting news this week?
1: Well, um, you might have heard uh, from our brothers and sisters in the Pacific Northwest that um, they got a little dose of socialism with the recent election of a Seattle City Council member, um, Kashama Sawant, who uh, ran sort of on the socialist platform and managed to win a seat. And um, it's being hailed across the country as kind of a, a recognition that, uh, you know, one, not all socialists are evil, and two, they can actually win elections. Yeah. So um, socialism and electability are not uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, at least not if you live in Seattle. I don't know what it says about the rest of the country. But <laughs> hey. um, but we also, I mean, uh, if you listened a couple of weeks ago, you know that the SeaTac uh, Airport, which is not really part of uh, the Seattle city per se, it's own little enclave. But they actually voted in uh, the highest minimum wage uh, in the country. Um, and it relates specifically to the workers in the airport area. So um, the Pacific Northwest has always been very entangled with uh, the aerospace industry. And um, while there was a boost for the airport workers, the uh, Boeing workers who are manufacturing the aircraft that you know go through said uh, airport are actually uh, in a bit of a in a bit of a bind right now because uh, they recently um, rejected a proposal that had essentially been imposed on them by the company that would have allowed Boeing to continue building the Triple Seven X. Model aircraft, um, and it would have, you know, promised guaranteed work for several years, um, and it, it looked like it would have been a good move for job security for Boeing workers and for a manufacturing sector that is struggling to hold on to those middle class manufacturing jobs. It seemed like, on the surface, it should have been a good deal for the union, but they were asking for givebacks that um, the union workers, you know, mainly the rank and file, found unacceptable. Um, it would have disrupted. Um, all sorts of provisions regarding their pensions, um, and it would have uh, you know perhaps more importantly um, undermined the pay scale uh, that would have allowed uh, younger workers to gradually sort of incrementally work their way up to a higher wage level. Uh it would have moved away from sort of the step uh wage system that they currently work on now and it just basically essentially would have made it harder to uh, move up in the way, in the pay scale for younger workers. Um we've seen this, you know, time and again with uh union contracts, especially in manufacturing plants that um you know that that have often had pretty strong collective bargaining power and uh, for Boeing, which has been having ongoing labor disputes, you know, for years now. Um, they're now sort of treating this as kind of a pretext for threatening to move, you know, to sort of a pick up the ball and uh, and move elsewhere. So now uh, the Machinist Union, uh, now that they've turned down those terms, Boeing uh, has found itself sort of in a state of war with its workers and, and um, is now, you know, feeling around for greener pastures in places like um, Alabama. South uh, La- Carolina. Yeah, those uh, bastions of, you know, famous... Uh, you know, non non-unionized uh, workspaces. So that's where aerospace is heading. And for many, uh, it, it's uh, it's sort of on a downward spiral from the manufacturing uh, system that we once had. Uh, but for the machinist union, um, they felt like they really needed to hold the line on this one, and they actually got a lot of support from unions um, around the country and um, throughout the region in the northwest as well. But uh, an interesting uh, wrinkle to this is that uh, Shama Savant actually spoke out on behalf of the Boeing workers, and we have a little clip of um, her basically speaking out on behalf of Boeing manufacturing workers, and saying that um, what we really should do is to be um, uh, essentially kind of taking over, taking back the factories, uh, taking back the means of production. uh, (gasps) Socialism. Because she's an elected official. But that's what she's really saying. So in this clip, if you read between the lines, she will have that subliminal message of class warfare in there. And she actually uh, calls for a, a retooling of the factory to serve the people rather than corporate profits. Let's listen.
2: If Boeing executives insist on relocating the factories out of Washington, that will be destructive not only to the Boeing workers, but to workers everywhere in the state, and indeed the economy of the entire state. And if they insisted on doing this, that would be nothing short of economic terrorism. And if they insist, the only response we can have to reject this blackmail is to tell the CEOs, if you want to go, you can go. The machines are here, the workers are here. Let us take this entire productive activity into democratic public ownership and retool the machines to produce mass transit. We need to fight against this big business agenda. We need to fight on behalf of the Boeing workers. We need to fight on behalf of Metro workers. We need to fight for $15 an hour, but that is not going to be enough. We are fighting against the system of capitalism itself, and look how spectacularly it has failed in meeting even the most basic needs of human survival. Look at the ever-expanding problems of poverty, inequality, homelessness, and the lack of access to basic social services not to mention the impending cloud of climate change. It will not be enough to fight for these reforms. We need to fight against a system that breeds these problems, and we need an alternative, and we believe the alternative is democratic socialism. The system as we have now, the capitalist system, serves the 1% and puts the planet in peril. We need a sustainable, global sustainable system that will deliver a high quality standard of living for everybody on the planet in a sustainable way. And our campaign has shown that it is possible to start building the socialist movement. And if you want to build, if you want to be part of building this ongoing movement for socialism, and against capitalism, I appeal to you to join Socialist Alternative and to join us in this effort in human transformation. Thank you.
1: One of Boeing's biggest buyers is uh, the uh, the Gulf Oil State of Qatar, and uh, they are um, uh, also the subject of one of the most recent pieces that I've been working on. The uh, the uh, Qatar is hosting the um, the World Cup in 2022. And they have come under fire for the systematic abuse of migrant workers. Um, And, you know, while uh, Qatar is making waves around the world with these huge purchases of Boeing aircraft and sort of moving up as an engine of global capital, the vast majority of their workforce is built on the backs of exploited migrant labor, largely from South Asia. And um, a bunch of human rights groups have spoken out about that. I have a report coming out about this uh, this week, and you should check it out if you want to learn about the kinds of horrific labor conditions that went into the making of the global spectacle that we know as the World Cup. So, um, before you you know get all up in your football game, just remember that um, you know some blood, sweat, and tears is poured into that stadium. So.
0: We like ruining your fun here on Belabor. Yeah, in case you haven't noticed. But <laughs>
1: since you're still listening, we figured you're into that kind of masochistic we, stuff.
0: Well, well, last week, after we ruined your fun a whole lot, we asked for people to send us good news, and somebody did. Um, Miranda Nelson, who is works with the Hotel Trades Council here, sent me a story about casino workers who got their wages effectively doubled. The New York Times reported on this after a year of wrangling between management and the union. Um, an arbitrator issued a ruling that doubles the average paycheck for 1,300 and some odd union workers who are cashiers, attendants, waiters, bartenders, and security guards who work at Resorts World, which is a slot machine parlor attached to the Aqueduct horse race track. So, aside from the fact that I find slot machines sort of incredibly depressing, We should note, and we may have talked about this before, that casinos just passed in New York State. We are going to have full-scale casinos now that are not attached to a racetrack. Um, And this is Governor Cuomo's economic development strategy. And so when you talk about this as, you know, job creation, it's worth noting how much these people had to fight to get these to be good jobs. Before this, they were $10 an hour lousy jobs, which, as we have probably mentioned several times on this podcast, you can't live on in New York. And so... But conveniently, that makes people want to play the slot machines more. Right? Exactly. So, right, we are talking about a strategy that is, you know, and it's not a great development strategy. In any case, as a lot of people have noted, it winds up being a de facto regressive tax on the poor. And, yeah, and also, we should also say, right, that Las Vegas, which is a union town, is a source of, once again, really good jobs in casinos. They could be a source of great jobs if we have some guarantees from the governor that we're going to see wages like the ones that the workers just won in this contract.
1: Well, at least in one casino, um, they are actually making some gains. Yes,
0: exactly. So this was sent to us as good news. This is, in fact, good news we will see living wages for about 1,300 more New Yorkers, which is excellent.
1: Right. Better than winning the lotto. Better than winning uh, Better than, winning than your the chances lotto. of winning the lotto, yes. let's say. Thank you. Okay. Thank <laughs> um, So there it is. We, we took a bit of bad luck when we spun into some good fortune for you. Jackpot! Um, and uh, finally, we are going back to the minimum wage uh, issue, but it's actually sort of a national story now because we're seeing more and more states and localities coming online, um, bringing up their minimum Wages, um, basically, as a as a remedy to the fact that Congress has absolutely refused to do anything meaningful about um, bringing the minimum wage anywhere close to what is uh, what would be a living wage for people today. So, in D.C., they are getting uh, ready to advance once again a city council initiative to um, install a minimum wage ordinance that would bring it to 1150. You might remember earlier this year there was. A uh, minimum wage law that was targeted uh, specifically at Walmart actually and other big box retailers that would have mandated a $12.50 minimum wage but uh, Walmart lobbied heavily against it, and it was defeated by a mayoral veto. Uh, the same way, a similar initiative went down in Chicago. So, if you um, if you notice here, there might be a pattern, maybe <laughs> of um, patrician mayors sort of saying no to things that um, legislative bodies have actually voted for. So, democratic right. elections, man. Right. Well, executive power in any case, yeah. but um, <laughs> so. Um, but you know, it looks like it will be an uphill battle to get an 11.50 minimum wage, which again is a step down from the. 20- 1250 initiative, but um, again, uh, there is substantial grassroots support for it, and as we saw with the City Council, it's very likely that um, there's a majority of the City Council that is going to be supporting this. Currently, Washington State has the highest minimum. It's nine nineteen. The city with the highest minimum is ten fifty five. Well, other than SeaTac, which just voted for fifteen. Right. So, um, if we go by SeaTac, which is that tiny little sort of um, uh, it's a town. It's, they a, voted it's an, for it. Right. It is. A, it is an island. It is a little island nation of sustainability in, in the middle of a vast <laughs> sea of impoverishment. But they they have the fifteen dollar minimum wage. The the so they get a gold star. But. Um, Uh, According to the latest count, I believe it's 21 states in Washington, D.C. that have raised the minimum hourly wage above the rate set by Congress. Uh, New Jersey voters recently joined to raise their minimum wage um, incrementally. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, Again, it really comes down to grassroots groups combining their forces with uh, legislators to push through minimum wage laws. And then it really comes down to the executive to see, you know, he's the one who ends up sort of bottom lining this stuff. Or uh, she, or she, right? But I must say that uh, the you know the last three big vetoes have come from uh, from from uh, dudes. you know uh, dudes. Yes. Right now, we're going to try to make it a little less doodly, um and we're moving on to one of the targets of a lot of these minimum wage ordinances, um, which is Walmart.
0: So Walmart had a very bad week in the news. Um, One of the things that was making Walmart's week a little less fun, which is, it's just too bad for them really, was the strike of port truck drivers in Los Angeles and Long Beach. This week's strikes marked one of the first times, other than the Wildcat strike that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago with Susie Cagle, that workers on strike at the ports included non-union and, more importantly, non-employee workers who are misclassified as independent contractors. So what that means, after the lovely deregulation bill that I mentioned, workers who used to have a job, used to be paid by the hour, used to have... Wage guarantees and a union contract are now in charge of paying for their own trucks, which often they lease from the company that they work for. Um, They get deductions from their paycheck for things like fuel, licensing, pretty much everything. Um, Linked to in the piece that I wrote about this at In These Times, and I will link to this at Dissent, is a breakdown of a paycheck one of these drivers received for the week. And from the 900 and some odd dollar check that this driver would have received there were deductions of 530 dollars for fuel 50 dollars for repairs 125 a week for the lease of the truck that this person drives deductions that added up to 962 dollars and 90 cents so the paycheck this person got after all of those deductions for one week was a little over 12 dollars but these, gosh doesn't it feel great to be your own boss doesn't it feel great to be your own boss and also one of the problems with this is that people who have to maintain their own trucks when they are making twelve dollars an hour essentially are when they ha- especially if you have to buy your own truck but even when you're responsible for paying for the repairs for it, these trucks end up in horrible states of disrepair. So, and they are often not up to the emission standards. As Susie pointed out, the cost of getting those trucks up to emission standards is falling entirely on these workers, who essentially have to choose between breathing well and bringing home enough of a paycheck to pay the rent. These truckers, it's really important to note, because they are cheap, help keep down the costs of shipping goods from overseas for companies like, well, Walmart. Others include Forever 21, Skechers, Shoes, pretty much anything that is made overseas, which is pretty much everything these days. Um, so I think it's worth noting always that, you know, outsourcing is part of the cost, but driving, are part of the plan, but driving down wages at home was also necessary in order to create the massive profits that companies like Walmart now enjoy. Yes. Like their slogan goes, like their slogan always low, wages. always low wages, right, so this week, or rather next week, which we will not be with you next week, but leading up to next week 's actions, because next week, of course, is Thanksgiving, and thus Friday is Black Friday, so Walmart will once again be the subject of quite a few actions this year, and To talk about Walmart and the culture of Walmart, why it's been hard to organize at Walmart, we have an interview with Liza Featherstone, who is a journalist, friend of the podcast, and author of Selling Women Short, The Landmark Battle for Workers' Rights at Walmart, which is a story of the fight, the lawsuit, rather, the landmark class action lawsuit over sex discrimination at Walmart. So here is Liza. So... Liza, Walmart this week has made news with yet another horrifying story, this time of a Walmart in Ohio that had set up a food bank for employees to donate to other employees. This sort of pinged a lot of buttons for me about Walmart's sort of Walmart's corporate culture and specifically a lot of the stuff that Bethany Morton talked about in uh, To Serve God and Walmart. But what do you think of this?
3: Um yeah it's i mean it's just amazing i can see why people are re- um reacting to it with amazement and i'm i'm glad because it really calls attention to um how um, little they pay their workers that their workers would be um these needy people that their um, fellow associates need to raise money for you're absolutely right to bring up Bethany Morton's book and i was thinking about that this morning as well In that book, she historically um, traces um, the very um, special culture of Walmart, which is so much about Christian service and particularly female Mm self-sacrifice. And so these notions of serving um, and of, you know, so you're going to work, but you're essentially still maintaining your Christian female role in society, which was really um, important in Northwest Arkansas at that time. Mm -hmm. Those are such important early founding values of walmart mm-hmm. and at the same time they've also had a really um, genuinely at times um, caring culture where associates that's what they call their workers yeah. really do look after one another and uh, i think a, a lot of people who have who've worked at walmart for many years yeah. will um You know, when I was interviewing people for my book, which was by, you know, so most of the interviews that I did were in the early 2000s, you know, people who had worked there for a long time would talk about how, you know, as Walmart got bigger, that this caring culture was really changing, you know, that, um, that they used to always celebrate each other's birthdays, you know, that if somebody needed something, everybody would pitch in, you know, so that there was kind of this community that helped to um, insulate the employees from the um low wage regime right. they were living under
0: yeah.
3: um, and um, and similarly this idea of service and sort of being um, a good christian woman and dedicating yourself to um you know serving customers and serving the company also Helped people to feel good right. about this low wage regime they were living under, you know, and like that, you know, it's it's okay because you know, like really being a good person um, in the ways that I understand that. You, so, I mean, I, I think that you can you can see the food drive. In that light, I mean, as you know, this is part of a tradition that Walmart employees have always had right. of of coming together and looking after each other, um, you know, and and, and sort of um, insulating each other to some degree from the rather brutal regime of work and low pay that they're living under.
0: Yeah, and of course that's part of what made it really hard for unions <laughs> to organize at Walmart too, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah, precisely because there is a Walmart culture, and while that's really frayed, I mean, as the as the company just became, you know, increasingly. Um, unsubtle about mm-hmm. extracting all the possible value out of their employees that uh, that they could, and mm-hmm. you know, getting more uh, more brutal and and less personal about it. Mm-hmm. But there always, yeah, there always has been this Walmart culture that people. Um, enjoy being a part of i mean when i went to the walmart annual meeting right you know that's the annual shareholders meeting and um and employees go like in very large numbers they're bust in um and they uh, you know they, they 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 do the walmart cheer and they um you know it's um very ritualistic and you know it's um, really fun. Like people really enjoy being part of it, and yeah. and I was I was standing there, kind of not participating in the right. cheer. I mean, it's kind of like being at church where everyone does this thing, and you're kind of like, yeah, is anyone going to notice I'm not doing it? Okay. Um, and um, so I'm kind of standing there, not doing the cheer. And this woman looked at me um, really kindly and smiled, and was like, "I used to feel embarrassed about it too, you know, and, yeah. and it was so." you know it was so sweet you right. know that i mean it was it's it was such a um it was like 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 you'll be part of us eventually yeah. you know cuz we we are this community and we really do accept everybody you know i mean yeah. so the Walmart culture it, it is very it's ingenious in that way that it does rope you in. It feels kind of warm and familial. And I think that does is part of what makes organizing Walmart hard is that there are a lot of people who feel pretty connected to it and feel pretty, um, invested in it. And, um, and, and feel like, you know, the, it is something that nourishes them and takes care of them to some extent. Yeah. Of course, it's also hard to organize Walmart because people are terrified right. because the company will um, fire you and, mm. um, and retaliate and, you know, make your life miserable. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's like, there's a hard coercion as well as a soft coercion. I don't want to uh, overestimate the warm, fuzzy dimension of it.
0: Right, yeah. And, of course, I mean, your book was about the women who first sort of stood up to this culture and pushed forward against Walmart's sex discrimination, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even doing that, which is not even organizing, Right took so much courage for these women, you know, I mean, you know, these, these people now who are going on strike and, you know, organizing each other, um, to stand up for their um, freedom of association rights. I mean, that's very radical for most people. I mean, to stand up to something that the company is so explicitly opposed to, but even just demanding that the company... Follow the law and treat women like human beings. Right. And I mean, it was a huge, um, a huge step because most people, for um, a lot of reasons, they they felt connected to the Walmart culture. They had wanted to believe in it, and they felt scared because they mm-hmm. had also seen what happened to um, people who did speak out against ill treatment in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So they were. They were very courageous and they really got the sex discrimination issue on the radar of the public and, and of the company, um, even though ultimately the case was thrown out by the right-wing Supreme Court. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, when I think about this, it, it feels like an abusive relationship, you know? It's like there's just yes. like, we love you and we support you and we whatever, but if you do something we don't like, you're out on your ass or we're going to just do... Yeah, we're going to take some sort of revenge on you. It's very manipulative in that way, isn't it?
3: It is. That's exa- in fact, that's exactly what um, Edith Arana, one of the plaintiffs in the Dukes versus Walmart suit, yeah. um, said to me. Um, she, she said, Walmart is like a bad boyfriend, yeah. you know, and you know, they tell you exactly what you want to hear, yeah. and that's how you get caught up, and you just keep coming back. And it's really true. I think I think about that a lot because I think the the company um, has had a hold on its employees that is emotional as well as material.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really different when talking about Walmart from talking about even you know the fast food organizing, which has taken a similar. I mean, the strategy has been similar, but like in a lot of ways, it seems a lot easier for people who work in McDonald's to say, screw this boss, screw this job, I'm going on strike, than it does for a lot of Walmart workers.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I think um, while there certainly are a lot of Walmart workers who haven't been working there very long, and and I think that certainly um, has got to help with some of the organizing that's going on. And, you know, the company um, has... There have been leaked memos saying that they wish to... Um, increase their turnover right? because right. these long-term employers are more expensive than they're worth right. so um, in some ways actually if they've been successful in that which I don't know yeah. um, that actually could help the organizing because historically Walmart has had high turnover but right. has also had a quite a few employees who have worked there for a very long time because mm-hmm. walmarts are often located in places where there is not a lot of economic opportunity mm-hmm. perhaps especially for women and so um you know it's it's definitely been a place where there've always been a fair number of people yeah. um who who will have been there for the long for a long, a long time and yeah you can um it's I, I don't think that um, McDonald's workers have the same emotional investment. I think when people get to the level of management and maybe feel that the company has invested something in them, yeah. you know, I mean, then you know, maybe maybe a little bit. But Walmart has always really talked the talk at the associate level right. of we real the of the the hourly associate level yeah. of we really care about you. We promote from within. You can have a career with this company, mm-hmm. and and these promises of of mobility are not true. I mean, most people will not um, advance from the position of hourly workers, That's and right. you know we know from uh, years of data that if they're women, they have a particularly low chance of right. doing that. Yeah. Um, but the rhetoric of of opportunity was always um, was was always very powerful and to, to a lot of people convincing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so we are gearing up for Black Friday again next week, and uh, I actually ran into you last year on Black Friday outside yes, of a Walmart. that was fun. <laughs> um, there was a big party outside of that Walmart. We were in Paramus, yeah. New Jersey. Yeah, in New Jersey, and there was a brass band, and there was all sorts of stuff, but I don't think there were any actually actual workers on strike at that particular Walmart.
3: There weren't, no. Mm, and no. so,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, I'd love to just get your take on what... Black Friday was what it meant last year to Walmart and to the movement around Walmart and what you would hope to see this year.
3: Well, I think that last year it it, it definitely showed that workers at Walmart um, could come together and walk off the job. You know, they weren't doing that at the location that we went to, but they mm-hmm. did in many other places and that they, they could do it and that they could they could do it without getting fired you know i mean that that the company would um would realize that there was some strength in numbers and that it would make trouble by retaliating against them and um, and I, so i think i think what the main thing that they accomplished last year was showing that they had some strength by coming together they were stronger than um just acting alone and complaining because um in the past i would interview walmart workers about what they were going through and you know even the people who had done the most to put themselves on the line you know speaking up su- joining the lawsuit would still say things like i don't need a union i can speak for myself right. you know and i have a big enough mouth and you know it's kind of a point of of pride like i you know i can i can't be pushed around right. and so for um, for for people to Come together and do something like that, and realize that they were stronger for for um, taking collective action. Yeah. I think that that was really important and and I know that in also in some stores, I think that they did manage to get some higher wages and um and some concessions mm-hmm. from you know individual management at individual stores right. um, as a result of their actions, which is also really um, really great um, I don't know, have a sense of how it's built, you know, and where they're going with it. I mean, despite having talked to people, you know, about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I, th- I think, I think we'll see, right? I mean, it's, it's. A, I think it's a little soon to tell whether these are um, going to be isolated actions, you know that do help change things for some workers here and there, which in the United States of America and at Walmart is nothing to sneeze at, right. or whether, and they are, um, you know, building a really significant organization for the long-term that could bargain eventually for all Walmart workers. Um, it's it's hard to kind of see that far in the future To and I don't have a sense that the strategy is yet that clear.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we learned last year, right, was that there is an appetite for organizing at Walmart that in some cases exceeds the appetite for the workers to be organizing at Walmart, right? That we saw right, people showing up at Walmarts in New Jersey where no workers were going on strike, but people were outside saying, if you want to come out, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> we have your back oh, if you yeah, want to come out. Absolutely.
3: And, and I think that, um, I mean my impression is that the i mean the the workers who are organizing i mean it's just thrilling for them to see all the public support because they didn't um, they um usually don 't really know the extent of public concern about their conditions until they do something like that, right, so I think that 's wonderful, but yeah, I think that you 're right that um for certainly for a lot of people working at walmart it 's like yeah you know, I have enough problems. I work in this crappy place, you yeah. know, and like my day is hard, and you know like you want me to also go on strike you know yeah. um, so you know I, I think yeah, I think that you 're right at some at some places, there just isn 't. And, you know, it still was a very small percentage of the overall workforce at Walmart that participated in these actions. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's just really significant because it used to be unheard of. It right. used to be that nobody would ever take action. I mean, I would say in the early 2000s, I probably... Knew just about every Walmart associate who had seriously tried to organize a union in their workplace. Yeah. And I I mean, off the top of my head, I think it was less than 10, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe maybe less than 15, yeah. you know, but it was just really not a lot. And now you have um, many more people taking action and saying, hey, we want to come together with our fellow workers and see some change. So as I would say, it's it's a big deal and it is a big deal. And it's, um, it's hard to know where it's going and or how big it's going to come.
1: And that was Liza Featherstone, friend of the podcast, a fellow labor journalist, and fellow New Yorker, I guess. And uh, I thought what she was saying uh, before about the new directions of the movement was interesting because it kind of leads into what we should expect this Black Friday. Um, last year, it was pretty groundbreaking because it was the first time we ever yeah. saw coordinated strike actions like that. And, you know, it leaves open the question if this year is indeed a repeat, while that was very dramatic, you know, there was that question of what is the end game, right? Right. Um, And we see that they have orchestrated a pretty tight campaign that's actually surprisingly well-coordinated using social media and using all these new tools at their disposal to bring together a pretty um, atomized, uh, you know, structurally diffuse um, workforce. Um, But then the question is, as they're building this critical mass, what can they do with that? Right. It's still a tiny sliver of the overall Walmart workforce. Yeah. So then, you know, yeah. where do they go?
0: Yeah, and I mean, last year was, I think, 400 or so workers that went on strike. And we have not seen anywhere near that number of Walmart workers go on strike since. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this year. I don't think that they've promised a number or even really given a number of strikers. But one of the things that I, I find interesting is they've got a website called associatevoices.com where you can actually, and I'll put a link to that at dissent as well, where you can actually look on this website and see where associates who, Walmart employees, have requested that people come hold an action at their store. So I think that this is a really interesting point that hasn't been brought up a whole lot that like this campaign has been has been good at using social media and the web to get out their story and to reach associates in a way where they don't, you know, they don't necessarily have the old model of union organizing where you have a flesh and blood organizer going into every store because that's just impossible. Nobody has that kind of money except well, Walmart. So things like this Represent a way for, again, for associates to actually say, hi, we would like our community to come stand by us and for the community to go forth and do that. As, you know, Liza and I were talking about the way that last year we saw sort of more community people than strikers at the Walmart
1: that we were at in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. And we don't, I mean, (laughs) in terms of who browses this website, I guess I would raise the question of, you know, are we just going to have like a whole bunch of random people crashing uh, Walmart events, which would be cool just to get a critical mass there. But then, what comes after that, right? Will those people continue to participate in this movement, and how will they yeah. participate? And so all sorts of interesting questions opened up. Um, I think the use of social media is vital and um, really needs to be explored more as an organizing model. Um, on the other hand, it does raise questions again about this so-called digital divide, who has access, you know, to these right. tools, yeah. right? And while Walmart you know, is the only one, they have a monopoly on access to these workers, they are also, I mean, they have a history of, of developing an entire strategy of reaching workers in what we might call a corporate grassroots kind of way, right? I mean, Liza was talking heavily about this. There's paternalism. There's almost a quasi-religious sort of cult-like element built into the culture of the company. Does the labor movement have any kind of analog to that? Does the labor movement have any kind of answer to that in terms of building solidarity? You know, know, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit with my arg, but... Yes.
0: On a related, possibly, note, I, I mentioned earlier that Walmart had a very bad news week. A couple of other things that were involved in that very bad news week were um, a report from our friends at Demos, um, specifically Amy Traub and Kat Richland, who are researchers at Demos who have done work on Walmart, on low-wage work, on all of these issues for years, and they found that Walmart could raise its wages to fourteen eighty nine an hour. That's almost enough to even meet C-tax high standards. Simply by not buying back its own stock, which basically goes to inflate the wallets of the Walton family and others, I find that stuff sort of interesting, fascinating. And we don't have time this week to parse how that actually
1: works. Right? But maybe we will in the future. Or why it even makes sense right. for a company to buy its own stock. The yeah. same way, why does it make sense for someone to be a worker without being an employee? Like yes. what? Yes, yeah. a lot of yes. things about corporate America. Yeah, don't yes. think too hard about them. Don't, Just accept don't. it. <laughs>
0: But yeah, and that there, there's news that workers who were fired after striking earlier this year are traveling to Bentonville to go to the Walmart home office to demand to be reinstated after their firing. And of course, we heard that the NLRB has filed a complaint against Walmart, which you might remember this guy, Josh Idelson, reported for Salon, saying that essentially Walmart is, well, we have, people have accused Walmart for a while of threatening and indeed firing striking workers and the NLRB has found this serious enough to move forward with action right
1: so they're actually just taking the first steps in prosecuting right. Walmart. I mean, we don't know how large-scale this is going to be. Apparently, they right. found merit with some of the claims and not with others, but, you know, it is a step forward because often it's uh, you know, when when labor unions and uh worker advocates find themselves before the NLRB, it's usually fighting some sort of war of attrition against right. a company that's trying to bust them. So now yeah. the tables have turned at least a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be really Interesting to see how that plays out, but um, yes. as we have also said many, many times in this on this podcast, the labor law system doesn't work real well. And waiting for the it's NLRB like to do things, law. right? Waiting for the NLRB to do things is not always the greatest strategy. Right. Which, sorry.
1: right? And that leaves open this question: you know, where is that? Where is that bridge between going through the? Um, you know. Agonizing litigation process at the NLRB level versus the grassroots level, where you have a couple of workers at each store, com- you know, valiantly coming out on strike and taking to the streets. But yeah. you know, then what's the end game, right? So, if anyone has any ideas, <laughs> our inbox is open. Yeah. So. Related
0: to all of these, as I just said, I, I the uh, the piece that I chose for ARG, I wish I'd written that this week, it relates to several of these issues that we've just been talking about. Um, the piece is at our mother publication, Dissent, um, by Kurt Newman, and it's called Letter from Santa Barbara, Reviving the Sympathy Strike. And so, you know, Michelle asked earlier if, if the labor movement has something to combat the the sort of Walmart- cult of personality, almost. And in this piece, he calls for the revival of the sympathy strike. He writes about the UAW local that he is a member of in California going on strike along with the California Nurses Association and the University of California's Skilled Crafts Unit in support of AFSCME Local 3299, which represents workers in the University of California system. So... This has been a thing that we don't see a lot of after the Wagner Act which created the NLRB. There are actually laws against it, he notes in this. Right. It's essentially kind of illegal. Right. In many right. He notes that in this piece that they are able to get away with it essentially because of a loophole in their contract he talks about the, the need for sort of class-wide organizing of this kind of solidarity, right? When we say sympathy, and he talks about the use of the word sympathy in a way that I find really um, compelling, and I, th- I think it's really worth reading the whole piece all the way through. But I would also say that, you know, when we say sympathy, we need to think about it, and perhaps I'm reading too much into it, sorry, Kurt, that we want to revive this ideal of solidarity, which we spoke about again a few weeks ago with Susie Cagle, the idea that we are all in this together and that that is at its best a a moral value for the left. Um, Like I think I quoted Chris Hayes as saying in that same episode titled Solidarity. And so this is a piece about the broken NLRB system. It is a piece about the possibilities that used to exist and that could exist outside of that system. And it's a piece about those values of labor of the left that we would like to see revived. So I think it was really
1: excellent. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of sympathy here is almost, um, it's more akin to empathy in terms yeah. of just creating a sense of shared, uh, shared sacrifice, as the right likes to say. But um, right. you know, and this idea that uh, people do have struggles in common, despite right. the fact that we're all told that we're all, each man is his own island, and we're yeah. all just fighting for our own. So um, and I don't know, I mean, it's still an open question for me as to whether our current sort of uh, digital media milieu will allow for that kind of solidarity building. On the one hand, it does shrink the globe, right? Yeah. You can get on a map and see all these Walmart actions taking place across the world. Yep. But, you know, now the question is, um, you know, engaging people at a visceral level and saying, you know, yeah, these are just dots in a map that you can manipulate and sort of, you know, uh, find GPS satellite images of. But um, yeah. what does that mean to your life, right? right. And that's where the grassroots element comes in. So can we combine the grassroots with sort of the, um, the digital age? That's the question. But going back to, again, you know, some of these old-fashioned things that might seem out of date, um, child labor, you know, kind of outdated, right? Where we're we like, been there, so. done that, but um, apparently we're still doing it. So um, uh, Mariah Strauss uh, has actually come out with a rather interesting investigative piece at The Nation talking about child labor in agriculture and unlike the rest of uh, industry which has generally speaking in this country outlawed um, child labor, um, as you know, um, you know, in the 20th century, people got the idea that maybe it's not so great to be sending little children down into coal mines or making them, you know, have their fingers chopped off in in, um, in cotton mills and things yeah. of that nature. But in agriculture, it has, uh, as with many um, aspects of American agriculture, sort of uh, maintained this bubble that is wrapped up in this veneer of the uh, the bucolic ideal of the small family farmer, the uh, the yeoman, as we like to call them. Mm-hmm. In, in, in American history. So it's been largely um, outside the scope of a lot of federal labor regulations. And child labor is one of these things that um, is not so, so horrific in the farm world because they say, hey, you know, why couldn't a kid as young as 12 work legally on a farm if they're just earning some extra cash over the summer, you know? Uh, show them some discipline, you know, spend a summer picking picking potatoes and, and, you know, show them the value of hard work, you know? So it's about building values, people. And the problem is that um, sometimes kids die, right? And that complicates it because uh, kids will fall into... Um, They'll fall off tractors, right? Um, they'll get poisoned with pesticides. Um, sadly, the bucolic ideal of the yeoman farmer is no longer really applicable to modern-day industrial agriculture. Even on so-called family farms, they employ a lot of dangerous equipment. And the um, the labor standards governing child labor have gone Virtually, you know, unrevised uh, for many, many years, um, the hazards list for um, uh, young farm workers uh, under federal law hasn't been updated since 1970, uh, according to Strass's report. So, um, you should take a closer look at that. She does a great job of um, elucidating some of the personal stories of the families that have had tragedy befall them. So, she actually profiles the family of a boy who uh, was, you know, uh, trying to sort of um, uh, try his hand at farm work and, uh, you know, uh, work on a tractor and kind of uh, learn the ropes that way. And he died a horrible, horrific death. And uh, his family has been searching for accountability ever since. But she also looks at another dark side of uh, the child labor debate, which is that, you know, these aren't kids growing up in rural America learning how to be, you know, hardworking adults. They're often uh, the children of migrant laborers who are essentially part of a vast indentured workforce, and they're sent out into the fields at a young age to accompany their parents often violating the law, right? Um, Kids even younger than 12 have been spotted in some fields, according to human rights groups. And a lot of these abuses take place um, in virtually unregulated work environments. And so um, the next time you hear someone talking about, you know, why child labor laws shouldn't be applied to farms because it teaches people good old American values, um, you know, think about how that squares the reality that, uh, many, many migrant farm worker children face when they're out there um, toiling away in the hot sun, picking our blueberries um, and breathing in um, you know, hazardous chemicals all day. Not an ideal childhood by any means. So uh, check it out. It's in the nation.
0: We're going to take next week off. We are going to take next week off. Because we'll um, be waging
1: class war. Because
0: we will be out on Black Friday talking to hopefully some striking workers. We hope you have a happy holiday and don't have to work on it. And let us know if you go to a Black Friday protest near you. Tell us how it goes. If you are a Walmart worker who is going on strike, thinking about going on strike, not going on strike because your manager has threatened to fire you, if you do, we would love to hear from you. And maybe and even have
1: you on the show. Maybe even have you on us. the show. Right. And we can do our own little crowdsourcing exercise. You can map out and see where our listeners are right. and wh- you know, how they've been making a difference in their communities. So. Excellent.
0: On that cheerful note, then, we will be back in two weeks. Have a good one
2: This life is hard so hard I must go Hate to in the fact we can't go Society hasn't been